0: Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to our Sunday School class, uh, talking about global Christianity. And this morning, we're going to look at the continent of Africa, and particularly sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, And I'll just invite you to turn to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. You know the story well. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I? "...unless someone guides me." And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, "...like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its sheer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth." And the eunuch said to Philip, "...about whom I ask you, Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. And I'll end right there. That's the response of someone who believes in Jesus Christ and is baptized. They respond with joy and rejoicing. Uh, That's why we practice believer's baptism. But the point of sharing Acts chapter 8 is actually just to point out the advance of the gospel among those from the continent of Africa. And, and I'm going to pray as we begin, but that's, that kind of sets us up then for this morning's discussion. Would you pray with me as we start? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the one who came as the Lamb slain. The one who died for sinners, who rose from the dead, through whom we can believe and be saved. We thank you for the advance of the gospel to Canada. But we also this morning want to reflect on the ways that the gospel is spread throughout the many countries, throughout the continent of Africa, even as we have read about, even with the testimony of this Ethiopian official and the way that Philip, the evangelist, had an opportunity to share the gospel and point him to salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we also thank you for the gift of baptism and that we can actually know and declare our faith th- publicly through the waters of baptism as we seek to express our obedience to you and also our fidelity and loyalty. Uh, to Jesus Christ so help us even this morning as we think about a little bit of history and the advance of the gospel in missions we pray this in Jesus name amen so we have that example now uh, the historian Mark Knoll recently highlighted the changes in Christian adherence around the world and he said in Africa the numbers are very telling in 1900 the turn of the century, there were only 8.8 million Christian adherents. In 2008, that number jumped to 423.7 million, or roughly 47.7% of the population. I'm talking continent-wide here. What this reflects is a significant shift in the population center of christian adherence no longer is the population center in north america or europe but it is in africa and south america now at the same time as we will find out and uh, we're going to actually have a have a little testimony a little on the ground testimony later on but even when we're calculating numbers of christians it's always the problem of what is a christian and so that's, the, that's one of the challenges, whether we're talking about Canada. Statistics will say, well, there's all these Christians. But are they Christians? Are they born from above? Are they going to heaven? Or are they Christians in name only? And that's some of the challenge. Now, historically, in, in the continent of Africa, you have Roman North Africa. You have the Coptic Church. You have Ethiopia and Nubia. Are these places where you have then this early Christian push you should have a handout if uh, that you would have got I'm hoping did was there did the handouts come okay, they're probably still in the photocopy room then maybe the may, will just have to go with me then maybe Hunter could you come and you go down the photocopy room or Akeen is on it There was handouts uh so Roman North Africa so time of the Roman Empire, well, the gospel goes very quickly from Jerusalem, from that Judean area with the first apostles. It spreads to North Africa. And so in Northern Africa, the Roman Empire became very strong so that in places like Alexandria, Egypt in Northern Africa, Alexandria becomes a Christian hub later on uh you've heard of saint augustine augustine the great theologian he was a north african theologian well he is in what would in modern terms be called tunisia um where's my third son we were just talking about tunisia on the drive in but that's that so you have then this development so tertullian cyprian athanasius augustine origen they're all in North Africa. Uh, by the third century, Egypt and Ethiopia, they then develop then their own church traditions. Uh, there was a lot of theological debate. I'm not going to go into it. Just some of some of the early early Christian debates about who is Jesus Christ or the nature of the Trinity; these become then uh, some of the most contested debates in the early church, but they occur often in North Africa. So that's where these tensions are, because that's it's kind of then this kind of theological these theological centers or this hub is in Northern Africa. Now, I should just say that in six hundred and ten. A trader from Mecca named Muhammad, he felt called to deliver a new message by God. And so he preached this, what he viewed as this uncompromising monotheism. Well, Muhammad gathered a group of followers that would explode over the next 50 years. And they would continue in this growth. And of course, Muhammad then is beginning what religion. Islam and this is why uh, I first heard this described. Michael Hake and my friend uh, the church historian he describes Islam as really it is actually a Christian heresy because it's in response to to what happened where there was actually a real decline in Christian communities, both in, both in their morality and in their theology. And in response, then you have a guy come along and he says, oh, well, God told me that we're going to do this differently now. We're going to do it right. And so he takes elements from Christianity, elements from Judaism, and then crafts then this new religion that, of course, has exploded. So in Africa, the Maghrib, and to the south and east of Ethiopia, Ethiopia battled Muslims for many years, and Islam would then shape a large portion of the continent even today. Uh, Now, it, it is important to mention that these churches, they represent some of the earliest churches in Africa. Now, the challenge when you look at stuff in terms of, you know, these early churches the assumption can be, oh, well, then, then we want to then latch on to whatever they thought or believed. But, you know, as we know, even in the New Testament, the earliest churches weren't always 100% sound, right? <laughs> Otherwise, the Apostle Paul never would have wrote a letter, would he? You know, so just because it's from the early church does not mean that its practices are to be followed. So that's just a general tip. That doesn't apply to Africa or anything. That's just about how you view the early church. Well, you had then this age of exploration. Specifically, the European countries, they all saw the continent of Africa as this opportunity to gain resources and wealth. And so you have the advance, first of exploration, but it's always a commercial view. The exploration is in view for commercial interests. Now, often what would follow after that would be then missionaries. Um, So we've seen this in the churches, talking about Asia, China, and elsewhere. European-style Christianity was exported and transplanted into these distant countries. The missionaries went out and sought to convert people that they found, and then the colonists went out, and they settled in these newly discovered lands, bringing their religion with them. And then, so so then you have then, if it was from a Catholic country, well, then they brought Catholicism. It was from a Protestant country, then they brought some vestiges of Protestantism. Now, the Portuguese, they were big on this exploration, especially in Africa. They battled the Muslims in Maghrib for many years, uh, and they're they're trying to find their way to India. Um, Rob taught about India and the Portuguese colony at Goa, but then they wanted to find a different route, so then they started exploring the African coast. So, 1497 Vasco da Gama, explores the African coast. They built forts, trading posts, settlements. Uh, 1482, a a fort was built in what is today Ghana, and you have Catholic missionaries arrive. So then you have Roman Catholicism. Uh, Often it would be the case you'd have chiefs or kings of tribes who were converted, and then all all of their followers were baptized at once. We've seen this pattern. We saw it Uh, With Constantine, we've seen it. We were talking about Vladimir in Ukraine, in Kiev. uh, You know, just going to baptize everybody because this is my my people, so we're just going to baptize them all. So then were people really converted? And in this instance as well. This is Roman Catholicism being taught uh, just prior to the Reformation, but right near the time of the Reformation coming, just breaking into the 16th century. Uh, some of the first interaction that many African people would have with Jesus would be through Roman Catholicism, uh, tr- through, through that. And so, so then the Catholic priests spread. But as with all Roman Catholicism, and you can find this in South America, certainly in North America, you can find it in Europe, you can find it wherever Roman Catholicism goes, there's always this inherent syncretism. Roman Catholicism... Uh, it's it's like uh, it's like Star Trek and the Borg. It just it it'll just attach on to, not that I'm a trekkie, because I'm not really. It's just an illustration. Just make sure you're awake. But but it it'll attach on to anything and bring it into bring it into Roman Catholicism. So long as you're going to the church, you're okay. But it'll it then brings in then local folk religions into it. That's why anybody who says, oh, well, Roman Catholicism, it's been the same all the way along. Of course it hasn't. It's different in South America. It's different in Africa. It's different in India. It's different in China. It's different in the U.S. It's different in Canada in terms of how it actually functions. So you have then this emphasis. Um, Vast numbers were baptized by the late 17th century. The Capuchins, which is a Roman Catholic order, they baptized 50,000 people. In Congo, in 1543, there were roughly 2 million Roman Catholics, half the population. Nevertheless, nothing became deeply established. Everything relied on the Europeans. And so then you would see then this irreversible decline, especially then with the slave trade. So the international slave trade would decimate the economy and the people of Congo, many other people groups in Africa. Roughly 4,000 people were being stolen from Congo alone for the purposes of slavery every year. 4,000 a year. And the, the slave trade quickly became central to the economies and the burgeoning power of many European countries. Why did European countries not want to stop the slave trade? Why did it take a lot of legislative courage to try to stop it? It was because it made money. It was part of a money-making operation. Now, the first non-Catholic to arrive on the continent, uh, the non-Catholics, were the Dutch. So so they came. their, Their aim wasn't missionary, though. It was trade at that time the dutch empire they were making money they were there was they had this global empire and they were making money so they settled in cape town south africa by the 18th century so 1700s the protestant powers that's the brits and the danish as well they had forts set up along the west african coastline and these small settlements were primarily for trade but later, in the later half of the 18th century, so the mid-1700s to the late 1700s, that saw the first Protestant missions to the African continent. They were, at first, very tentative. So the first Anglican, that is Church of England, missionary in Africa, in the continent, was Thomas Thompson. He was sent by the Society for the Propagation of the gospel in 17, it was founded in 1701. He was there in about 1751 and he went to Ghana. Uh, the new missionary impulse was, for the most part, organized not by the European churches themselves, but by these new societies. So the churches themselves struggled to actually have a, a global missionary vision. But then what happened was then there was these, we would call them parachurch societies were established. And through those, they became a mechanism where Christians from a broad number of churches would come together to see the advance of the gospel. Often one solo church just didn't have the resources to try to send somebody on a ship to go to distant lands to share the gospel. Um, but th- so there's all this burgeoning of these and if you've got the handout you see the list there the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792 the London Mich- Missionary Society in 95 the church Missionary Society in 99 so the first one obviously is Baptist London Missionary Society had different denominations in it the church Missionary Society uh, you- is from the Anglicans uh, the Church of England and so these are These are well-known groups. At least to begin with, these societies had nothing to do with secular imperialism. Missionaries were sent to Europe or America as well as Africa with a simple aim of preaching the gospel. That's their intention. And indeed, the evangelical and often dissenting nature, so that's non-Anglican nature, of these societies, made them suspicious in the eyes of most churchmen. And thus, there were, if anything, counter, they they were countercultural rather than imperialist lackeys. So you got to think, you know, William Carey, when he goes to India, he can't even go to the British possessions in India because the East India Company does not want missionaries, especially Baptist ones, stirring up the people in India. And that's the case in the different countries in Africa that often the the trading powers did not want Baptists or dissenters, as they were known, non-Anglicans or non-established church people, going in and preaching the gospel because they feared that then that would create revolutionary populations in these places. And they wanted everybody just to kind of stay calm so these trading ventures could keep making money. So... You always have to follow the money. But these, initially, these efforts, you know, when you read their stuff, they're not, these guys, they're not interested in advancing British or Northern European commercial trading interests. That's what we hear a lot of in the kind of rhetoric we get today, but it's just not the case. They were there to preach the gospel. They're concerned with souls. Now, some people don't like that, that Christians believe that, Everybody in the city of Calgary is obligated to believe the gospel and they must repent or they're going to go to hell. There's a lot of people don't like it that we actually believe that, but we do believe they're under that obligation. And that's why we want to share the gospel. But that's different than saying, well, we also want them to be these profitable uh, consumers, you know, bulking up capitalist society. Well, actually, we're, we're less concerned about all that probably not concerned that much at all with that we're concerned with people's souls and that's what these first missionaries were now there then there was also then the development should be here is is African mission efforts to Africans so basically indigenous missions as we might describe it today the so um, Protestant Christianity become widespread among slaves and former slaves in the US and Canada and also Britain and, and many were keen to bring Christianity to their continent of origin. And so we have some of the first African Protestant missionaries to Africa. One of these was Jacobus Capitain. He was ordained in Holland. He left for Elmina, which is a region in southern Ghana, where on behalf of the Dutch Reformed Church, he preached to his, to his fellow, the people group. They were the Fonte. He translated the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and a Reformed Catechism into Fonte, if I'm saying that correctly. Another was uh, Philip Quayuke, who succeeded Thomas Thompson at Cape Coast. He was trained in England, became a chaplain to that community until his death in 1816. He was the first African to be ordained by the Church of England. The efforts of these African missionaries were aided by migration into Africa of large numbers of Christians from overseas. So they were freed slaves and their descendants coming to start a new life in what they still saw as their home continent. So in 1792, 15 ships full of former slaves from all over North America arrived in Freetown, Sierra Leone. The new settlers were, for the most part, fervent evangelicals of the kind we saw Just previously, as we were just describing the previous point, uh, preachers such as David Ash, Moses Wilkinson were among them. As they marched off the ship, clutching their Bibles, one group sang the hymn, Wake and sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. For they regarded this return to Africa as a new exodus to a promised land. As this suggests, Christianity played a central role in the life of the new colony, and it wasn't too long until these new settlers took the gospel to indigenous folks. Now, in 1807, the Slave Trade Act passed in Britain. The government tried to enforce it by policing the West African coast and seizing illegal cargoes of slaves. They were taken to Freetown and freed. The population of the colony swelled by 2,000 to 3,000 people, many of them from Nigeria. They were convinced by their experience that the god of their old indigenous African religion had abandoned them, and they were receptive to the god of the Freetown Evangelicals. Now, Freetown was, had a considerable influence on the western coast of Africa, one of the top schools was formed there. Many people returning from slavery would come to Freetown for a time and then return to their original homes, often taking the gospel with them. Uh, similar to, C- to Sierra Leone, what, Sierra Leone was Liberia to the southeast. This coastline was settled by former slaves from the USA in the 1830s and 40s. The country achieved independence in 47, 1847 hence the name Liberia, for its inhabitants were proud of that, that in their view they were the only Africans to be both free and civilized. Mission here was a serious concern, and as in Sierra Leone, it was primarily an Anglican affair, a succession of bishops established a large number of mission centers in the area with considerable success, although they didn't reach as wide an area maybe as the missions of Sierra Leone. Um... There's there's many more. Uh, Black Americans were evangelizing further along the coast, especially in Cameroon. There was a thriving Jamaican Baptist mission overseen by the English Baptist Alfred Sakar, or Saker. One of his protégés was Joseph Merrick, who was a brilliant linguist who translated parts of the New Testament into Isubu. He was also a printer. He was able to print his own translations, giving a huge boost to both the Christian mission and widespread literacy. Uh, They always go hand in hand. Uh, I'm just going to skip over talking about Nigeria, because our brother's going to talk about it here in a second. Um, Now, I mentioned syncretism earlier. It should be noted how all the while you have different African indigenous religions while it wasn't uniform, but often they 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 ended up sharing They, they kind of got m- mixed in with these different practices that were troubling uh, There's much more through the through through the, the there's more European missions happen I'm just gonna kind of skip over some of the different ones probably the most famous maybe for us uh, might be David Livingston and um, but, but Livingston in 1813, his dates are 1813, 1873, he trekked from one coast to the next. His journal set off a flurry in Europe and he described the continent as ripe for exploration where, quote, commerce and Christianity might be imported together. And that began really then a more intense period of colonization where European missionaries would seek to impose both European customs and culture mixed with Christianity, too. So it just kind of all went together. And so, th- so you just have these changes that happen. 1914 into the modern era, um, into the modern era, uh, the eastern side of the continent was rocked by Europeans fighting with each other. So 1914, you got World War I. Well, what happens? There's war in Europe, but then the war takes place in the colonies right and so you have you have Germans fighting French fighting and also fighting the British. Roman Catholicism exploded all over sub-saharan Africa uh Protestant church efforts were only tolerated and received little help um, by nineteen sixteen by 1960 however there were two million baptists in kenya and much of the success was through evangelistic efforts specifically setting up bible schools now the 20th century big story of the continent of africa and again i speak of the continent of africa uh, it's like talking about it's even more diverse than say the continent of north america you know how how is canada like mexico is like the us you know, like i mean we're all so different on this continent so don't want to give the impression as if africa can be spoken of as a monolith but on a continental wide thing looking at different countries the 20th century though witnessed the growth of pentecostalism and quote unquote prophetic churches. These quote-unquote prophets swelled the ranks of various churches, but they represented then, or they tried then to to present themselves as often a uniquely indigenous expression of Christianity with these prophets. But again, it's that same old problem of syncretism. 1865 to 1925, Prophet Harris, he was he was indigenous to Liberia. He, brought, he was brought up Methodist but converted to the Church of England. He had a vision, he said, from the Archangel Gabriel who, inst, who instilled an unshakable faith in him and, and that he thought he was the prophet of Africa. In 1913, he crossed into Ivory Coast to preach, spoke to crowds of thousands, imploring them to turn away from idols to God. His message was uncompromising. He didn't accommodate traditional African religions. People responded in droves, 100,000 in a year. Many were baptized by Harris himself. Uh, Simon Kimbangu, 1889 to 1951, in the Congo region, born in Nakamba. He became a Baptist at a young age, taught at a mission school. In 1918, he began to preach and became, became disturbed. By supposed visions of Jesus, in 1921, he supposedly healed an ill woman and the stories of his healing power spread. His followers grew into a church that reflected a growing charismatic or even Pentecostal nature of African Christianity and started new denominations. Now, so then this this Pentecostalism, then, it spreads throughout One of the things that happened through many of the countries through the 50s through the 1970s is many of the countries experienced civil war. I don't have time to go through all the different countries, Congo, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, Zambia, Uganda, uh, coups, Idi Amin's coup in 71, like all these things. And with them, with civil war and conflict, you can imagine it becomes very difficult to have stability For churches. Yet, at the same time, with all this turmoil, the churches were one of the few places where you did have stability. Uh, Obviously, probably the most bitter struggle, even thinking about the church, were the events that led to apartheid in South Africa. Apartheid was where you had a minority white ruling population and the subjugation, a discrimination, and a segregation of the black majority. Now, it significantly impacted church life, and so the result is you had then, as it were, black churches and white churches. Now, although there were some Anglican Christians in South Africa who spoke out against apartheid, not just Anglicans, there's from other denominations, but then... But then there was it created real tensions in those churches And I mean I those the the fallout from apartheid is still known in South Africa today And and some of the challenges as well as in how to respond in consequence of those things Uh, One of the things that you see is Christianity's story during this time period through the 20th century reflects the same as other parts of the world where you have the passing of authority from these European establishment churches to then African folks on the ground. so And, and the establishment of churches by Africans on their own. Um, and I would even say, like I, I'll just give a little anecdote and then, uh, so I sat together for the gospel there, it's a month or so ago. And I, I, I thought the. I thought the best preacher, like actually the best preacher, of the whole thing, was from Kenya, Uh, and he was he was awesome. And so, like, what's happening then is uh, when Vodi Bakum was here, uh, Vodi, when he was here, he spoke and he talked about African Christian University in Zambia, where he works. There's other ones. I met Phil Hunt at T4G and. Uh, Gavin Peacock and Gavin and Amanda have both been to the Central African University where Phil Hunt works. They've they've spoken there. These schools are so good. I remember commenting to a friend. I said, oh, well, you know, soon it's going to be, you know, not people from other parts of the world send their kids to Canada to Bible College. We're going to send our kids from Canada to Zambia to Bible College, right? So just to see the change of the quality of of the gospel in some of these different countries that has resulted. Now, this is kind of a drink with a fire hose, and it's kind of a scatter shot. But what I wanted to do, I asked asked our brother Akeen to come, and I'm going to ask you to come up, Akeen. Akeen's going to share a little bit about Nigeria. So again, one country in the continent, but offers a bit of a case study for a country, and he's going to share a little bit of a testimony about Nigeria for us, and I'm just going to give you a mic here, Keen, And then you can share. And then we're going to take Q&A after that. So you've got that. Just hold it up close.
1: Thank you, Pastor Clint. <coughs> um, so um, I'm a Nigerian, and so is my wife. So just to give you a little background about Nigeria, so you understand um, the geography of the country. So Nigeria is one of the most densely populated countries in Africa. Um, Over 200 million people live in Nigeria. Uh, An area of over 900,000 kilometers. So if you compare that with Alberta, Alberta has um, 4.3 million people and with an area of 600,000 kilometers. So that just gives you um, a way to compare um, accordingly. It's the largest population in, in Africa and the seventh largest in the world. So lots of people live in Nigeria. And it's home to over 250 ethnic groups. So there are lots of people. Well, there are three major uh, ethnic groups, but um, that's the Igbo, the Yoruba, and the Havusa. But um, there are over 250 different ethnic groups within those three major ethnic groups. I, I would like to um, divide the faces of the Nigerian church in three faces. Right. So the first phase was from the eighteen forties to the nineteen thirties. And that was when missionaries came from the West. So we had the Anglican Communion, um, the Church Missionary Society, the Church of England, the Methodists, uh, the Equa from Canada, uh, the Presbyterians from Scotland, the Catholic, uh, that's the French fathers from Cameroon, the brethren from Plymouth. And we just had different people from the English-speaking world uh, moving to Nigeria for various missionary activities. And they were teaching not just uh, the Bible, but they were also teaching Western culture. The highlights of this particular phase was the missionary zeal. Um, They left the West and they came to uh, the jungles of Africa, of Nigeria. Well, there will be some language and cultural barriers um, in, in this particular phase. I, I would like to quote from uh, a missionary called uh, Saratoka in 1854, just to give you um, a sense of what she met when she arrived in Nigeria. And she arrived in a small town called Abeokuta in the southwestern Nigeria in July 1846. So here's her quote. Their idols are of clay or wood or metal, and several are generally placed in one particular room in the house, where they receive some kind of adoration morning and evening. It can, of course, be no spiritual worship that is offered to their imaginary deities, no confession of sin, no prayer for pardon, no supplication for the Holy Spirit, and no thanksgiving redemption can come from their lips or hearts for of this they have never heard make me rich make me healthy give me children avenge me of my enemies are the only petitions a poor Yoruban ever offers to his God. So that was a state um, that Siratoka in 1842 met the uh, local Nigerian so it was you know, local worship of deities or local worship of idols. The next phase is from 1930 to 1970, and these were the Nigerian indigenous churches. They broke away from the missionary churches. Uh, They wanted the churches to be more Africanized, right? They felt the people from the West, we are taking too much authority uh, they didn't give enough to the Nigerians. Uh, but there were also some few theological differences. For example, um, the Nigerians wanted polygamy. They wanted to marry more than one wife. But the, um, the missionaries didn't like the idea. And so they had to be a split. So the highlights of this particular uh, movement or this particular phase is um, they wanted the church to be self-governed self-propagated, and self-supported. They also wanted the people in the community to lead the churches. They didn't want the the, the missionaries from the west to lead the churches. And then the next phase was after the civil war in Nigeria. There was a civil war in Nigeria in 1966, and that was the third phase, which uh, was a very troubling phase, and that was the Pentecostal wave. And that happened from, um, what I would say, from America and Britain with, um, Pentecostals, w- with Pentecostals coming. And the highlights of this particular phase was they wanted to grow very fast. They wanted the church very, very fast. Uh, and so right now in Nigeria, even, even though there could be some churches that are conservative, but by and large, the effect of Pentecostalism is being felt even in these churches. I, I want to speak a, a little bit about Pentecostalism um, in Nigeria, and one of the biggest church is called the Redeemed Church of God. Uh, just to also give you a sense of how how what their vision is like and what they want the church to be like. So in Lagos, uh, that's where you know we lived for many years they have at least one branch in every street Uh, i won't call them churches i'll call them branches because they are they want to make money (laughs) right Uh, and so they have a branch on almost every street and their vision if you look on their websites is to plant churches within five minutes walking distance in every city and town of the developing countries and listen and within five minutes driving distance in every city and town of developed countries like Canada. So in Canada, in Calgary currently, they have at least 15 branches right now in Calgary. So they have, um, their vision is to spread. So they don't care about um, what they are spreading, they don't care about doctrine, theology, Their aim is just to spread, and spread really, really fast. Well, so probably you are thinking that you are immune from the Nigerian religious junk, just know that it's just beside you here in Calgary. Um, And also in Nigeria, there are um, local indigenous churches. There are a few reformed churches in Nigeria. Um, I would mention their names here. Sovereign Grace Bible Church, which we attended, my wife and I attended for three years before we moved to Canada. There's, they have a church plant in the same city, Sovereign Leki Church. There are two reformed churches in Abuja. There's the Sovereign Grace um, Community Church, Abuja, and Trinity Baptist Church, which I will speak a little later. Uh, on the political scene, uh, we know there's Boko Haram. Boko Haram terrorizing most parts of the north. We also have, not just Boko Haram now, we have bandits also terrorizing uh, the north. And just this morning, I saw in news that some gunmen attacked a Catholic church in southwestern Nigeria. So th- that, that's something that is spreading rapidly. There's also corruption and uh, in Nigeria. So not just the corruption you will think of in the western world, but th- the corruption in terms of politicians stealing and diverting uh, government funds is very rampant in Nigeria. It's very rampant. Conrad uh, Mbewe, um, I- he's much respected in the reform circles in the West, but also a lot in Nigeria. He calls uh, the Nigerian religious um, community uh, relig- religious junk. That's what he calls And he's absolutely right there. I just want to read a quote from him um, that he foot up on his blog so as to make you understand uh, what's going on really in in Nigeria. So here uh, I will start. In the African charismatic circles, the man of God has replaced the witch doctor. He is the one who oozes with mysterious power that enables him to break through those two impregnable layers which us lesser mortals cannot penetrate. So when blessings are not flowing our way, despite our prayers, we make a beeline to his quarters or to his church for help. This explains the trunks in these circles. The crowds are not looking for someone to explain to them the way to find pardon with God. No, they want the man of God to pray for them. This also explains why prayer in the modern charismatic movement in Nigeria is literally a fight. In fact, the people praying are called prayer warriors. Although they begin by addressing God, within, few, v- within the first few seconds, they divert from God and begin to fight the spirits in these impregnable layers with their bare knuckles. The language is always, we bind every unclean spirit in Jesus' name. We'll lose the spirit that breaks the yoke in Jesus' name. The prayer warriors scream at the top of their voices, and chant the name of Jesus. They sweat as they put up a gallant fight with the spirits, straining every muzzle of their beings until they prevail. So they think that is when they reach true God and his blessings begin to flow. This is nothing more than the African traditional religious worldview sprinkled with a thin layer of Christianity. This reminds me of of the story in the first kings 18 where the uh, the prophets of baal uh, in their battle against elijah you know if, if you know the story in first kings uh, 18 it's pagan worship pagan style of praying uh, o- there's also a flippant way in which they call the name of jesus they they have to call it many times so you you, you hear them say in jesus name in jesus name in jesus name uh, is the arm of the lord too short Does the maker of heaven and earth, our God, does he sleep, does he slumber? No, he does not, right? But they think that them calling the name of Christ in a flippant way many times, you know, maybe strengthens faith. Well, I I would like to also quote from a friend of mine in the Reformed church in Nigeria. Uh, He's a dear friend. He says, friends, we should be horrified that after 160 years later, the Nigerian church is still praying exactly like our animist forefathers. A Christianity that sees God as an evergreen father Christmas does not lead to eternal life. A Christianity that is identical to religion practiced in Africa since time immemorial is an offense to God and misrepresents him. We have nibbled too long at the table of the world. Our souls are stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. He ends with a prayer. I pray that our eyes will see the wondrous light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If we see that light, if we behold that glory, then the things of this world will grow strangely dim as we find him, as we find in him our all in all. Well, it's not all bad be honest it's not all bad in nigeria my home country there are some laudable efforts uh, that and we can see god's hand there so conrad mbewe um has a church plant currently in in abuja uh, called trinity baptist church and our former church in lagos actually supervised uh when they were in the initial uh, uh phases our local church back in nigeria they during covid they had so many people coming into the church, and right now, they have to now plant churches. Although they are very careful about how they go about it, because in the Nigerian context, they don't want to be seen like you know the big churches in just spreading all out. They're trying to be very careful about how they go about it, and also just to also talk about um, there's an American missionary uh, called Heshmukula, so. He's really a very brave man, to be honest with you. Um he, he has been preaching in Nigeria for three years now. And with him, he's not just in the south, he's in the north. So that's a little bit too dangerous f- even for me, <laughs> right? But he's all over the north, traveling by road. And so I I admire his efforts and I pray that the Lord would would um would bring success to even to his ministry. Um there's a prayer point uh, after, I sp- after speaking with my you know Reformed friend back in Lagos. So like I said, there, are, there were three phases, the missionary phase, the next phase, which was the indigenous churches. The third phase was the Pentecostal phase. But he, we are praying for the fourth phase, which will point people back to the Bible, which will be biblical, which will be sound, mission-minded, but led by the local people partnering with all of our people in the world. Uh, so thank you very much.
0: Don't go away, Akeen. Uh, just want to open it up for questions uh, for Akeen, or just a, a few questions on uh, this massive topic, thinking of the continent of Africa, its vast history, and, uh,
1: and, and more. Rob? So uh they are called Redeem Christian Church of God. Christian Church of God. And if you just check Google Maps, you will see that there are about probably 15 currently now in Calgary. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but their their goal um is just to spread out very quickly. Um they don't want those branches to be independent. Of the main church, so those churches always have to report back to the main church and always have to, you know, pay tithes and offering back to the main church. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so it's a franchise. They're franchises. Yeah, they're controlled centrally, and yeah, it becomes quite a money maker. Questions. I'm sure if you do have questions uh, you can certainly talk to Brother Akeen on this and, uh, and and just get his take I thought especially helpful is just thinking of, of the influence not just of Pentecostalism but but then this whole prosperity gospel um, one of the things you have to realize is that one of the one of the most demonic exports from North America around the world Is prosperity gospel teaching that is that is throughout all places wherever there's satellite TV so that Joyce Meyer Joel Osteen Kenneth Copeland all of these teachers they're all translated it's all goes everywhere and and churches quote-unquote churches are established with many people who think that then they are they're holding to Christianity but they're actually holding to a false gospel So it's tragic that we would send this false teaching far and wide. Um, So we can be praying for those efforts to be thwarted and in its place, the true gospel would be preached. I'm going to pray and close our time and then uh, we'll get ready for the main service. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have not left yourself without witness, but you've given us all the opportunity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. Lord, I pray that you would help us here in Calgary to be faithful stewards of the gospel so that we would bear a faithful witness in this region, even as we hear about other regions. We pray for the many different countries, people groups, uh, regions throughout the continent of Africa. We pray that good, healthy Bible-preaching churches would be established, that... People would be converted to the true faith and would cast off idols. We pray for the ministries of Conrad Mabiwe. We pray for uh, African Christian University and Vodibakam We pray for all the different works that are going on Uh, Ken Mabunga in in Kenya, Uh, different churches, Bible preaching churches throughout the continent. We pray that they would be able to flourish and spread. And we pray, Lord, that you would raise up many workers into the great harvest in that vast continent. Lord, now as we prepare ourselves for worship, help us not to neglect the great opportunity we have even to hear your word, to sing your praise, and to bear testimony to the goodness of the gospel in this age. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, you've got a few minutes to get ready for the main service. Like I said, go ahead and bother Akeen and uh, ask.